The Lodge by Robert McMinn Chapter 12 Our old place was so very much smaller than the lodge that it's not even funny. To remember that we lived there for so long with two teenagers and only one bathroom between the four of us feels something like a Vietnam flashback. It was a three-bedroom semi, dating from the 70s, and it had hardly any loft space because the bedrooms were built with dormer windows in the roof. Being semi-detached, you had to hope like hell that your neighbours were both tolerant of the noise your own family made and not too noisy themselves. We were lucky. The couple next door were a retired university professor and his wife, who was a hospital nurse. They were mostly completely quiet, but they did occasionally have people round, and when they did, you would sometimes hear the conversation through the walls going late into the night. I suppose when they got together with their friends, it became a bit like old times with university colleagues having intense political discussions. As for us, we were probably the noisiest family at our end of the street, but I don't think either of the kids, Kate and Martin, were particularly bad. Very occasionally there would be a noisy goodbye to a friend who had given them a lift home on Friday or Saturday night, and I'm sure they cranked up the volume of their music whenever we were out, but we never got any complaints. I grew up in a semi-detached house too, so having a connecting wall with the neighbours felt completely normal to me. There are worse ways to live, and as long as your neighbours aren't absolute ravers or tapping electricity from your meter to provide heat and light for their indoor cannabis farm, you get used to it. My next-door neighbours for the first 18 years of my life had been smokers, and I suppose the worst you could say about them was that you got an occasional whiff of tobacco smoke and would often hear the distressing, hacking cough of the family patriarch as he slowly committed suicide by players number six. Grace, being much more of a social butterfly than I was, had managed to make some friends after we moved up north. She would chat to people on market days and was getting on quite well with Mrs Moffat too, and had been introduced by her to the local worthies, the ones who ran the fates and the fundraisers. It so happened that on one night in early February, Grace went out to some kind of committee meeting, leaving me alone in the house for the first time since we'd moved in. You may wonder why I wasn't getting involved, but as an extreme introvert, my heart sinks at the very notion of a meeting or a group, and while I'm happy to lend a hand, I don't think I could bear being on a committee. I spent my entire teaching career trying to avoid work in groups and I also avoided imposing it on my students. She went out at around seven in the evening and I put on the outside light for her return and went to sit in the morning room in front of the fire. I watched a bit of TV but there wasn't much on so I switched it off and picked up my book. You might wonder why I didn't put some music on or a podcast but I rarely do when I'm concentrating on something. I can have music on when I write, but not when I'm reading. And speech is reserved for when I'm driving, or cooking, or doing work around the garden. So I left the house in silence, chucked a big log on the wood burner, and settled back to read. What was it that I was reading? I think it was a science fiction anthology, and because it was on my e-reader, I didn't need much in the way of ambient light. I think there were a couple of small lamps on in the corners of the room and the comforting light from the fire. The curtains weren't closed at the windows, but it was completely dark outside. We were finding 
though we didn't bother much with curtains and blinds. There were no near neighbours to see in, and even if there were somebody outside, I'd rather know they were there than not. So if you're used to being in a cosy room with drawn curtains at night, you have to think again. I was curled up comfortably on the sofa with the blank screen of the TV in front of me and the wood-burning stove to my left. Behind me yawned the black void of the morning room's windows, which were designed to let as much light as possible in during the morning. Having watched TV for about 90 minutes, I suppose I started reading at about half past eight and put the last log on the fire at about nine. So I had been sitting there very still for a good couple of hours when 11 o'clock came around. I thought for a moment that I heard Grace's car crunching on the gravel outside, so I looked up for my screen and listened. And it was then that I realised I could hear something, but that it wasn't coming from outside. Moments later, I had to admit that I had been distantly aware of this sound as ambient noise for a considerable time. What I could hear were voices, the low murmur of a conversation on the other side of a wall that had been going on for at least an hour. Sometimes it sounded like someone almost singing or at least speaking in a musical tone. The voice, uh, the singing one, sounded far away, as if through a public address speaker with the reverberation of an indoor swimming pool. But when it settled down and sounded more like conversation, there was a distinctly deeper voice, male, and a lighter one that might have been a woman or a child. I understood with a chill that ran the length of my spine that I had not been alarmed by these voices because they sounded so familiar, so much like the voices of my old neighbours and their friends late at night on the other side of the connecting wall between our two semi-detached houses. And was that a cough? I think then that goosebumps were covering my whole upper body when I realised the impossibility of this. It could not be the neighbours because there were no neighbours. It could not be inside the house because I was alone in the house. I suddenly felt cold again, like all the heat had been sucked out of me. I put my e-reader down and got up, walking somewhat stiffly over to the dark window in order to peer out into the garden. I held my hands up to the glass to shield my eyes from what little light there was and stared at the dark lawn. There was nothing there, not even a fox. I turned back to the room and contemplated it, straining my ears to hear, but as soon as I had noticed them, I think the voices had stopped, which was even more chilling, I think, because it made it seem as if they had been aware of my inattention and were now aware that I was trying to listen. I walked across to the door to turn on the overhead light, and in spite of the late hour, I put a couple of small logs onto the fire and opened up the draft to get it going again. I was blowing on the embers to get a flame going when I did hear Grace's car. I closed the door of the wood burner and went out to the front door to say hello, turning on the hall light as I did so. She came in full of life. Oh, it's cold out there, she said. Just walking from the car I got frozen. How was your evening? I kissed her and said, fine. Was there anyone out there just now? Anyone walking by on the road? No, she said, nobody. Why do you ask? I'll tell you in a minute, I said. And turning off the porch light and making sure the front door was locked, 
I followed her into the morning room. She was standing in front of the fire. It's late to be putting logs on, she said. Usually we decided that we got too hot if we kept putting logs on the fire too late in the evening. I felt a sudden chill, I said. I'm glad of it, she said. That wind must be coming straight from Siberia. Why did you ask if anyone was outside? Well, I was just sitting here reading all night, you know, and then at a certain point I I thought I could hear voices. Oh? And it occurred to me that maybe the wind was carrying in the voices of people talking outside or walking past or something. Nobody in their right mind would be out walking in this cold, she said. No, well, so, I was hearing voices. So you're wondering if you're hearing voices or were there voices that you were hearing? It hadn't occurred to me till then that I might be hallucinating voices in my head. I frowned. I think it's more likely that this was the house up to its old tricks again, she said, don't you? She was right. And now it began to seem as if things might be escalating. From the feeling I'd had at Christmas that the house was simply pausing while too many people were around, to the warm glow on that January day, to this February night of hallucinated voices, things were picking up. Meanwhile, Grace had been making use of her new social circle to find out more about the house. First of all, there had been the rumours about her own aunt and uncle and what had led to the murder. As I think I said to you before, this couple had lived all over the place during the course of their marriage. Louis had a restless nature and she had tended to force this issue, agitating to move on after three or four years in the same place. In Grace's childhood, they had settled in a village near Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire, great train robbery country, and then a few years later had moved to a house on the edge of Dunstable also in Bedfordshire. Uh, this particular house was in a great location right next to the Dunstable Downs. They had stayed there a few years while their horrible kids were young, but had then moved to a small village near Tring in Hertfordshire where they had run the village shop and post office. That had been about three years, but then they'd moved to a small cottage near Winslow in Buckinghamshire, after which, I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear, Grace lost touch with them and stopped keeping up with the moves. But the moves had continued until finally they moved into the lodge, Alec having made a huge success of some business deal or other. Grace said this was very strange because when the families had been in touch, Alec had been working at the local cement works and not in management. He was the kind of guy who arrived home from work with his clothes white from cement dust. However it was, they'd obtained the property. They'd been living at the lodge for four years when the murder happened, and rumour had it that Louis had been complaining in their last year that she wasn't happy in the house and wanted to move again. Alec, on the other hand, was adamant that he wanted to stay put. This grew, as the man said in the poem until Alec snapped and pushed her down the stairs. But the interesting part of this story is that the local gossip went that one of the reasons Louis wanted to leave the house was because she did think it was haunted. But if she had been aware of something going on, I can't believe Alec wouldn't have observed the same phenomena and perhaps been just as keen to leave which made me think of the possibility that one of them had been scared out of her wits while the other 
uh, perhaps been on the receiving end of the warm glow of love and approval from Casper, the friendly ghost, a kind of cosmic divide and rule. The house had apparently been in the same family, the Turners, since a year or so after the Second World War, the previous owners having gone bankrupt in the 1930s and the property then having been requisitioned by the army at the outbreak of the war. So between 1939 and 1946, it had been used as some kind of covert training centre. Then the house and land had been sold by auction to the Turner family, who seemed to have been happy to occupy it until its sale to Lou and Alec in the 21st century. Up until 1938, the house had been in the hands of the Stevenson Mobley family. The last named owner had been James, who had lost all his money on bad investments in the 1930s and, because of some scandal or other, had been forced to give up his seat in the House of Lords. He had apparently hanged himself in the barn days before the banks foreclosed on the property. The Stevens and Mobleys had been in possession since the 18th century, the original owners having also bankrupted themselves, carrying out improvements and extensions to the building. Grace told me all this over breakfast the following morning. She really had been networking very successfully. As to who owned the trunk in the loft and the fancy silk pyjamas and other wedding gifts, she hadn't been able to discover. They were vintage, but not that vintage, so we assumed they were something to do with the Turners, although there were surely other weddings in the lodges past. There was some tale, for example, of a woman who had been left waiting at the altar. On the other hand, there was no strong evidence that the trunk in the loft had been there before Louis and Alec moved in. It might have been something they brought with them. They had been married in the mid-1960s, which was a plausible date for the pyjamas and the silverware, even if we couldn't explain why they'd remained unused. Then again, Alec had never been in the army, nor posted overseas, so the trunk and the pyjamas probably did not belong to him. I listened and discussed all this with interest, and then said, Seems like bankruptcy is a fate that awaits the owners of this place. Remind me not to go in for any unwise investments. Then I thought about the silent retreat business, and shuddered. <laughs>